Welcome to UIDP Conversations, where we have candid discussions about partnership and collaboration across academia, industry, and government. I'm Sandy Maul with UIDP, and today I'm joined by UIDP President Tony Bocanfuso and our special guest, Chris Austin, Director of the National Center for Advancing Translational Science at the National Institutes of Health. I'll turn the mic over to Tony and Dr. Austin. Chris, it's so great to be with you today, and thank you, Sandy, for the introduction. Uh, it's been a while since we've been together, and hopefully we'll be able to get together in person sometime soon. Yeah, I um, hope so. It's nice to be with you virtually. There you go. Well, these are certainly interesting times going on right now, and, and certainly NIH and the importance of NIH is critical to uh, a lot of contemporary challenges and issues we face. Love to just explore with you for a second as director of, of NCATS, what you see as uh, how NIH is fitting into this crisis management and crisis, you know, meeting the challenges associated with the crisis? Well, let me, uh, I'll, I'll answer your question about NIH and then NCATS, the part uh, that I run. So uh, one of the gratifying things uh, and one of the certainly uh, silver linings about the last six months has been the coming together of uh, institutes and centers at the NIH who have tended to be a little competitive with each other, uh, and, uh, and and NIH and industry uh, who have tended to be a little competitive with each other, and industry companies who have, of course, been the same, and they have come together uh, along with uh, major and minor nonprofits and, uh, and governments around the world to do what UIDP uh, preaches all the time, which is that we will get farther and faster together than if we do it separately. And and Tony, you know, and I have been preaching that message for a lot of years, and, and I think we've seen it happen in COVID in, in a major way. And so I think a lot of us are asking, well, gosh, how do we, how do, how do we, how do we keep these, how do we make these behaviors stick going, going forward? Uh, you know, NCATS is one of um, 27 institutes at the NIH institutes and centers. Uh, our particular role is to be, uh, as our name suggests, the the organization that carries across. That's literally what translation means: to carry across from uh, traditional academia. Uh, fundamental research to uh, the more practical, useful applications that will actually reach and benefit patients. And, and so we have uh, always had more um, uh, alliance in our mission with uh, not only universities, but industry. Uh, and, uh, and so we're playing a, an outsized role in the NIH's COVID response. So you're the first or the inaugural director, I believe, in 2012 yeah. for, for NCATS. It's a relatively new uh, center uh, within the NIH um, framework. Um, you obviously play a very important role in this translational aspect, as you mentioned. Therapeutics are important to what you all do, and it's the core of your mission. Love yeah. to hear outside of, once again, the contemporary challenges we face, what, what things would our community want to know about what NCATS is doing so to speak, in the kitchen, um, yeah. that they're going to learn about sometime in the next, you know, six months to a year, that'll have relevance to what they're doing in their day jobs. Yeah. Well, I, I, I would say, first of all, uh, that I'd like your community to know uh, that, that NCATS uh, is, is, a, is a bit unusual 
uh, among NIH institutes uh, and that by design, we were designed to be different. Uh, and, and one aspect of that is that uh, every, every project we do is a collaboration uh, with someone with, uh, uh, among universities or with companies or nonprofits or uh, other governments around the world. You know, translation is a team sport and you, you, you just can't do this as efficiently as we would like uh, by, by yourself. And, and, and we're, we make no bones about that. Um, uh, and that's the first thing. So when we, when you, when members of your community are interested in talking to us, realize that we want to talk to you too, uh, because because uh, that that's really where our collaborations come from. The the second is that uh, we, we serve a, a critical de-risking function. Uh, if you want to use business speak for a moment. Um, and I think your community is well aware that 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 there are a myriad wonderful discoveries uh, that come from the academic sector mainly, uh, but but they they and, and they have enormous potential. Uh, but potential is just that, and uh, and you can't sell potential. You have to sell reality. And and as we all know, unfortunately, there is a long way between potential and realized potential. And and unfortunately, not all potential turns out to be real. And the only way you're going to understand that is by getting in the kitchen, uh, and and cooking it up and see whether it recipe tastes good or not. And, uh, and, and we know that, uh, you know, historically, uh, most recipes do not test, taste very good and, and, and they fail. And so, uh, you know, we're well aware that companies cannot make a business case to take on a, a risky uh, a new approach, despite its potential, uh, and meet their fiduciary responsibility to their investors. It's just, it's, it's, it's not that they don't want to, it's not that they don't realize that there's, that there's potential. And, uh, and, and frequently, you know, I find myself in these uh, rather, I think, absurd conversations here in Washington where there's, you know, pointing, well, this is your job, well, this is your job. Well, the reality is it's, it's neither the job of traditional uh, uh, academia, fundamental research, or the job of traditional uh, uh, commercial organizations, there is a large space in between that is the translational space, and it's called the valley of death for a reason. And, and if you go to your investors and you say, I'm going to you know, make you a good financial return by working in the valley of death, uh, you're probably not going to be successful, nor should you be. So, so, we re so, so our function is to live in the valley of death. And so we speak, we're bilingual. We speak company and we also speak academic. And, and, and I myself can speak either. Um, and the other thing that I'd like your community to know is that uh, we're not simply a, a translational organization. I mean, every, every, every part of NIH does some aspect of this process of uh, going from a fundamental discovery to an intervention that is in the community and benefiting the people that you hope to benefit. The, the NCAT's mission is translational science. So what do I mean by that? Translational science is very different. It is the field of investigation that seeks to understand what the general principles are by which this process happens with the premise that if we can understand the fundamental underlying science and operations of this process, it will transform this endeavor we're all in from a largely trial and error, empirical shots on goal 
um, uh, uh, endeavor into a predictive science. So what we, what, and, and it's interesting to reflect just for a moment on the fact that, that here we are, I've been in this field my entire career, and as a, you know, many of the people on the, on the call, and it's interesting to reflect that, that virtually everything I've done in my career has been empirical. You know, I haven't had a, a theoretical underpinning of almost anything, whether it's whether it's you know medicinal chemistry or toxicology or uh, how to how, or clinical trials or implementation in the community. We we don't understand how to do that, and as a result, the failure rates were extraordinarily high, which is exactly what you would expect. But the answer to this, in our mind, is not more shots on goal with a high failure rate. It's to focus on what the causes are, the scientific and operational causes are for that failure rate, and 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 then disseminate those as broadly as possible, so that the entire community can work on them and use them. And so that that's the that's the long term mission of NCATS, and it's it's what we mean by translational science. So let me follow up on that point. You know, some of the things you're talking about involve areas like artificial intelligence and, and other areas that haven't been traditional players in therapy development, right? Therapeutic, yeah, sure. right? It's, these are companies that are looking at, they're less interested in the fact that it's therapeutic development than they are interested in applying, you know, some, some, something they've learned and they, they a product they have. So maybe you could talk about some of the non life science company players and, and their role in this, because I think it goes on with exactly what you said about, trying to be more predictive and have better tools, right? Mm -hmm. So maybe you could just talk about that. Yeah. yeah, so so of course, as, as soon as one says predictive, uh, one, uh, one has to say, well, how, how, do we, how do we make things predictive? Well, the first thing we need is data. Uh, and the next thing we need is, is a computational ability beyond the human mind to be able to recognize patterns in the data. And so we, uh, compared to other institutes at the NIH, are, are because we're an integrative institute and we're trying to understand general principles, we, we are very data-driven. And, 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 and so our, our interest and in, in investment in informatics and all those magic words that you used, you know, artificial intelligence, machine learning, deep learning, all of those things, uh, is, is, I would say, outsized. Uh, relative to to other to other institutes, um, and and I'll just give you a, a, a couple of examples that aren't just in in informatics. Uh, we're we're doing um, a large project uh, to try to integrate um, uh, synthetic chemistry with analytical chemistry, with automation, with engineering, with biological screening and AI uh, to create. Uh, a, 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 an integrated system that would allow us to explore novel chemical space. And, and one of the collaborations that we're working with is a company called Kabotics, which is in Boston, which is an AI company. And working with them to, uh, to do many trials of, uh, in this case, assay conditions for a high-throughput screen, but it almost the application almost doesn't matter, um, uh, where where they have the AI experience, the AI expertise, we have the automation and screening experience at our place. But the problem is, Kabotics is in Boston, and we're in in Maryland. But with the magic of the internet, uh, uh, that company is actually running our robots from where they are, 
And so that rope, that AI brain tells our robots what to do. They run an experiment, report the results to the AI brain in Boston. And these two go back and forth uh, while, while we're all at home watching reruns of uh, Game of Thrones. And, uh, it, it, it's, uh, and but we're absolutely dependent, of course, uh, to make to your point, uh, on the, these these companies that have expertise that uh, you know we're utilizing for life science, but but to them it's AI. Um, there, there's there are other companies that also quite different uh, from the normal space that we're working with, and, and, uh, uh, and perhaps the most uh, out of this world example, pun intended, is uh, is a is something called the Chips in Space Company uh, program. So uh, our tissue chips program, which tissue chips, I hope your viewers know, are are, um, are little bioreactors, uh, multicellular bioreactors that can mimic the structure and function of human tissues. Uh, and, and those, that program has on purpose spawned many, many, many companies, including Nordis and Emulate and, and Hespros and many others. We, we took this to another extreme to say, well, gosh, you know, a lot of the the things we'd like to know about muscle loss, sarcopenia in the elderly, uh, uh, immune senescence, uh, bone loss, osteoporosis, those are those are really well modeled by uh, astronauts on the space station. So how about we take some of these uh, tissue chips and we put them on the space station of microgravity and all of those processes dramatically accelerate. Uh, and 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 what's even what's even more remarkable is when they come back, that process of aging and muscle and bone loss reverses itself. And so, but we don't know anything about putting tissue chips on the space station, right? So, so we. Uh, uh, we are collaborating with a number of space technology companies to do that. Uh, so so and the point I'm making here is that if you're really going to be innovative, you have to think about not only innovation of the science, but the innovation of your partners and the way you think about collaboration. And, and that the way we think about collaboration, we think about, about that is an area of innovation in itself. So really interesting, very insightful, by the way. Thank you for sharing um, those specifics. Our whole organizational premise is that partnerships are valuable, that you get more than you could by working independently, and that in, in, in the long term, that these relationships can lead to, to new products, new services that are going to improve the human condition. Yep. Universities are intimately familiar with NIH and how it operates. We consistently hear from UIDP companies um, across all sectors that they want to co-create. They want to leverage government investments at universities or research organizations or hospitals with investments that they make um, and either commingle funds, but many times it's not commingling funds. They just want to be able to invest and be able to match it with something going on from the federal government side. Yeah. What would you say to you know companies, large ones like our members, but even small companies? And you know, you mentioned a few who want to who want to get more engaged in building synergies and leveraging their investment of resources and talent. Um, how can they partner with someone like NCATS yeah. uh, to do that? Yeah. Well, it's, it's a great question. It's something we think about a lot. Uh, and Lily Portia, who Tony, as you know, is our head of strategic alliances. Um, 
uh, uh, thinks about this a lot too. Uh, I'll just make a small point there. You notice I don't call, we don't call our group tech transfer. We actually don't believe tech transfer exists for the most part. I mean, the number of times that you can simply transfer a fundamental technology to a company and have it work are vanishingly small. So that's why we call our group strategic alliances. And, and because that's really what it is. You're, you're trying to derive, is there potential here or not? And if you, and how do you, how do you figure that out as rapidly as possible and both benefit if it, if, if it turns out? So, so that's our whole model. I would say that the problem for companies, and I have this conversation too, uh, a lot is distinguished from universities, is a part of it is a cultural issue and part of an organizational issue. That is, you know, universities are one step away from, from the people at NIH. Most people at NIH are essentially academics. Most of them have never been in the public sector, in the private sector before. I don't mind telling you, when I got to NIH 18 years ago, I was the only person at the NIH who had ever been in a pharma company. It's 18,000 people here. So uh, if, if you are a company and you come in and start talking to people, and that's better now, it's better now. So the language and the values and the way companies work is just, it's just a foreign language, whereas the universities speak the same language as, as NIH does. That's part of it. Universities have things like things called sponsored programs offices because they run their operations on the basis of overhead, which is called, called indirect costs on grants. They have very large operations to make sure that their investigators can get an award because every time they get an award, the university gets a third to a half of what they get. And so they put enormous resources into this, and, re and companies don't have that. They, they don't mainly have BD operations, but that, that's, that's both to fund and to externalize generally. And, they're, and, and, and they're, so they're, they don't have that expertise. Uh, I, I, I would say the other is that there are rules about uh, working directly with the federal government which I run into all the time, which are really is impossible by law to mix public and private doc dollars at the NIH itself. If the NIH gives money to a university, it came from NIH, but it's the university's money now, and then you can do a, a collaboration. So the projects that we do directly with companies, and keep in mind in parts of our organization, half of our collaborations, half are with companies, small companies, big companies. Uh, they are either as straight out grants or contracts, and companies often don't realize that they are eligible for virtually every funding mechanism that NIH uh, issues. Doesn't have to be an SBIR, but also there are large um, contract mechanisms uh, for, in, for instance, what we're doing uh, with the, the CHIPS and SPACE program or with the large drug development programs that we have here, those are straight up contracts. Uh, we also have gotten very good at what are called CRADAs, which are cooperative research and development agreements. Those are um, a, a structured uh, vehicle that assures the company that they have some control over the, over the co-owned IP that would come out of an agreement. Um, and, you know, if you talk to some companies uh, and, and they will say, oh, you know, you say CRADA and, 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 and they just they, they hang their head and say, oh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, not in my lifetime. We knew that NCATS was critically dependent on collaboration. So we innovated on that process. And now we can do creatives in a few weeks. And, and we do as many 
of these collaborative agreements as institutes and centers four or five times our size. And so that's what I mean by innovating on the process of collaboration. Thank you. Uh, so, you know, you've been in this role. This is your your startup company that you. Yeah, it is. I hired right? the first person, actually. Right. So, we still have our T-shirts. There you go. I mean, and, and that's exciting uh, yeah. for you. I'd love to know in terms of success and, and where you see NCATS um, in the, once again, in this ecosystem that, that you live in, yeah. in translational sciences, yeah. you know, when, when you look at what you've done, pro, you know, retrospectively, what would you say are things that really have had impact on societal benefit? And then I'll, and then I'll ask a question that's re, uh, prospective, which is, you know, where do you see the Institute or the center, I'm sorry, the center going 10 years from now um, when you have more gray hair like me? And, yeah. you know, yeah. where do you, where do you think that NCATS will be then? Well, thanks for the question. And, and I'll answer it on the micro level and the macro level. We've had many micro projects, uh, that is individual projects that, that, that we're very proud of. I'll just give you one example for, so reduce this to practice. Um, we had a, a company a few years ago called, called Agilus Biotherapeutics. They're based in Boston and they were developing a gene therapy for a rare disease called an aromatic amino acid decarboxylase deficiency. Uh, so a really awful, rare pediatric neurodegenerative disease. Uh, and, and like many uh, novel technologies, this was a gene therapy uh, for this rare disease, they were not able to get the sufficient capital from the capital markets to make progress, even though the, the, the technology was very promising and the need was great. So we collaborated with them to do all the CMC tox manufacturing regulatory work uh, to, that you have to do. It's, it's, it's uh, you know, often an NIH. We believe very strongly that innovation, something that gets a needed drug to a patient, is innovative. It doesn't happen as often as it should. So we collaborated with them very, very closely on everything. We had a joint project team, the go no go decisions, milestones, the whole thing. Uh, just as they were graduating and the BLA was uh, was approved, uh, that company got bought by by PTC Therapeutics, uh, and is now and PTC is carrying it through uh, clinical development. So we've had dozens and dozens of those stories. Last year alone, uh, that group, that part of NCATS, uh, had 10 INDs cleared, which is unheard of. It's, it's just extraordinary. And it, and it shows you that the model that you espouse and I espouse, it works. It works. I mean, this this group has a budget of $35 million a year. It's just incredible. Incredible. So, so and, and that brings me to the to the to the larger point. It's not just that we're doing projects, it's that we're working out ways to to you know operational and scientific ways to to make this work better for everybody. Uh, and, and and you might ask, well, how do we choose what to work on? It's it's actually quite straightforward, uh, if, if a little unconventional from a from a bioscience point of view. We look at this problem as a systems engineering problem. And and a few years ago, we created a map. It looks like one of those old boring around maps of biochemical pathways, except it's more complicated. And 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 if you do that, then we created a Google map version. You know, what was red, what was green, what was yellow, and then we work on the red parts. Because it's like, what are the limiting steps in a biosynthetic pathway? And those, that's where you want to develop the catalyst. And if you do that, you will increase overall yield. It's, it's, so it's not, it's pretty straightforward thinking, but it's just, it's not the way most science is done. Most science is, uh, I'm interested in, I'll be a little pejorative here for a second, uh, you know, the toenail of a, an anteater and how that works. 
and, and that's, and, and eventually there may be something that comes out of that, that, that is very useful. And that's wonderful. That's basic science. It's what I used to do. It's, it's wonderful. And it, and it has a very important role, but it's not translation. And, and so we think about this as engineering. So that's how we got into, as an example, how we got into the tissue chip program. So the problem there was the large translational gap you're aware of between uh, animal models and humans. And the fact that 90% of what looks good, safe and efficacious in, a, in an animal is not safe or efficacious or both in a human. Big problem. And so we said, well, gosh, there's just gotta be a better way. You know, we've been using animals since uh, time immemorial, uh, but, but perhaps if we brought together an unprecedentedly large group and this is, again, this is something that we always do. Companies, regulators, FDA was on the project team from the beginning, academics from microfluidics engineers to, to cell biologists, to stem cell people, to pathway people, to cell sensor people, to computational and imaging people. And we, and we put them all on joint project teams and said, you develop a microfluidic model of pick your Pick your kidney, pick your organ, you know, kidney, heart, lung, liver, whatever it is. And, and with the purpose of modeling xenobiotic toxicity in, in a microfluidic platform. So it would avoid the animals. That was the idea. That was the original, which expanded a lot since then to disease models and things. But, but that was the idea. And so, and that has spawned an entire field, as you know, and thinking about not just saying, gosh, I wish we could use animal models and we really need to replace, you know, one of the three R's, uh, but how are you going to do it? You know, don't just talk about it. We just actually create a technology that will do it. On the clinical side, completely different uh, uh, problem. Many of your members may know that, that even if we had treatments for the 6,500 or so diseases for which there is no regulatorily approved treatment. It's a staggering number, uh, but also a scientific and a, a medical and a business opportunity, each, each of those. Even if we had treatments for those tomorrow, we would not have a clinical trial system in this country that allowed us to figure out whether they were safe and efficacious. And so we, again, we did a root cause analysis. What, not for a particular disease, because as you know, Tony, you know, the, the causes of failure are the same. It doesn't matter whether you're talking about Alzheimer's disease or, or lung cancer, the causes of these of failure uh, are, are pretty much generic. And it was evident that it was due to uh, IRB, duplicative IRB review, uh, uh, recruitment for clinical trials, common contracting, uh, a number of things which, which uh, nobody worked on. So we took these things on and within a few years had solved this, the, the common IRB problem through something called Smart IRB, which now 800 organizations across the country have signed onto. It's a treaty to rely on each other. It's just as an example. It happened because our culture is upside down from normal. And that doesn't mean we, we don't stand on our head most of the time, although sometimes I think I do intellectually at least. <laughs> Um, is, you know, translation, as you all know, and your members know, is unfortunately a, a very failure prone. So we have the opportunity, and it really is an, uh, an opportunity and an obligation, therefore, to not have the short-term commercial imperative that all of your members, your industry members have. We work in some of the same spaces, but we don't have to meet a quarterly earnings report. 
That is critical because all these problems I'm talking about, you're well aware of them. All of your members are well aware of them. When I was at Merck, I, I remember having this conversation. We would love to know that, but we can't use internal drug development resources to solve a fundamental problem. That's what we do here. And, and so what, what we're able to do is, is, is informed by what those problems are. We're able to develop uh, solutions to the IRB problem, the clinical trial problem, the, the animal uh, testing problem, the, and they're on and on and on, and make them uh, then publicly available. So you, then you might say, well, gosh, you know, you just talked about two things. You talked about doing individual projects and you talked about this highfalutin idea of, you know, new technologies or paradigms. How do these fit together? They fit together via a, a, an internal paradigm that, that, that we call the three Ds. You know, most companies have these or, you know, some mnemonic that allows people to remember. And the one here, the three Ds uh, stands for develop, demonstrate, and disseminate. We choose limiting reagents to translational efficiency, scientific organizational to work on. We, we, through grants, contracts, collaborations, we develop first the new ways of doing something with the premise that we will not keep doing the way it's always been done and expect a different result. That is the default around here, and this is what I mean by being upside down, is you're gonna do it different. And in order to do it the same way, you have to justify to me why it's failed a thousand times, but this time it's different, which it almost never is. So, so th and that's intellectually tremendously freeing. But then if we, can, if we can develop a novel way to do something, we have to demonstrate in an individual use case that it actually works or else nobody should believe us and we won't believe it either. And, and, and that's what the individual projects serve. If it does demonstrate as being effective, then our job is not done. We have to do the third D, which is disseminate. And that's what we're doing right now, is disseminating that information, actively enabling people, not keeping back the secret sauce, not just putting in a method section in a paper, just enough to get through the, the reviewers, but not enough to tell people how to actually do it because they might scoop you. We don't do that. We, we, we tell people how to do it. That's part of our job. So it's, in so many ways, it's, it's different from how the normal ecosystem works. And it's not that our system is, is better or worse than others. It's just our mission is different. So our operations have to be different to meet that mission. Chris, this is really great. I, I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your day to be with us. And I hope we can re-engage you sometime soon and get an update on where things are with NCATS and learn yeah. more about the great things. We'd love it. Thank you so much. We'd love it. Thank today. you, Tony. It's great to be with you. Thank you to Chris Austin, Director of the National Center for Advancing Translational Science at the National Institutes of Health, for joining UIDP President Tony Bocanfuso today for UIDP Conversations. UIDP supports professionals at top-tier innovation companies and world-class universities build better partnerships together. Learn more at UIDP.org.